<laughs> C B A. Oh, I'm so loud. Oh God, he did a Yankees clap. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're not. We're not talking about sports. We're not talking oh, about baseball, God. soccer, anything. I don't know if you saw the analytics on the last episode, but the one minute that we were talking about football and then baseball, we literally lost 50% of our viewers. <laughs> <laughs> so this will not be anything about... <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the opposite of a trigger warning. It's like he will not be triggered by this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this is a reverse... This is a load warning. Yeah. <laughs> this is a... Lock and load warning, all right? No sports, a lot of gun references. <laughs> X-rays from heck. X-rays from heck. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> this is the Mark Maron, David Wojnarowicz crossover episode. <laughs> X-rays from heck. <laughs> Are you tired of going to the free clinic? <laughs> <laughs> CBS.com. You don't need to go to the post office. <laughs> He's like, uh, if you uh, if you go to bluechew.com and get your dick hard if it works anymore. <laughs> All this uh, culture has become about is uh, having a hard penis and a rich head of hair. you're a subservient member of society shaving it all off <laughs> god forbid you suffer the natural flows of aging or aids <laughs> sorry oh god <laughs> sorry it's hot here this weather is no work of art I'll tell you that <laughs> in nature. Some of the content includes criticism of Cardinal O'Connor, Senator William Dannemeyer of California, and Senator Jesse Helms for their support of the new restrictive law. Thank you. This weather is certainly no work of art. Oh man, that thing. That, that is like unbelievable. It's gold. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should just quickly introduce. Hello, welcome back. It's uh, Spaghetti for Brains and it's part two of our little mini-series with Amy from Burning House Books. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Is that better? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Amy's back. We're gonna... Last time we talked quite a lot about, like, um, some of the things that, that, uh, that started Amy, that probed her to, like, get involved in selling books in a particular type of book, and we were talking about David Wojnarowicz and his memoir, Close to the Knives, we talked about it a lot, but we didn't actually read any passages from it. So we thought this episode we were gonna um, read a, a, like some, you know, portions of the book and maybe like talk about it a bit because I think it's really, I think it's an interesting book for so many different reasons. And I hate using the word interesting, but that's like uh, it's apt. I think it's 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 important. It's an important book now of all times because obviously um, David Wojnarowicz was an artist who had like a real interventionist streak in a lot of his work, be it his paintings, his uh, his films, the music that he made with Three Teens Kill Four and with Ben Neal, the trumpet player, <clears throat> and also as a writer with this book, Close to the Knives, among other books that he's written. And um, he was 
Uh, he died of AIDS in 1992, and a lot of the criticisms he made about America's treatment of people with AIDS, and specifically like gay people, people with uh, with, like, people with who contracted AIDS through uh, intravenous drug use, and uh, and people who were otherwise considered like surplus to the social kind of uh, you know the value of society outside of that logic of capitalism, especially in the period that he lived in, in like the 80s and the 90s. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that we can learn. I don't think it's like a one-to-one -one with COVID. I don't think the similarities are even that stark, really, uh, when it comes to the specifics. But but the the kind of logic involved is interesting. And the way that people have dealt with COVID emotionally and the way that people in power have dealt with it practically, I think, uh, has grown out of the way that both of these, you know, the UK and the US dealt with the AIDS crisis. Uh, there's a lot we can learn from it. And I think that David Wojnarowicz really nails it on the head with so much of what he wrote. So I wanted to kind of start by reading this passage um, from the very beginning of the essay or chapter. It's hard to decipher which, which it is really, um, but it's called Postcards from America, X-Rays from Hell. Late yesterday afternoon, a friend came over unexpectedly to sit at my kitchen table and try to find some measure of language for his state of mind. What's left of living? he asked. He's been on AZT for six to eight months and his T cells have dropped from 100 plus to 30. His doctor says, what the hell do you want from me? Now he's asking himself, what the hell do I want? He's trying to answer this while in the throes of agitating fear. I know what he's talking about, as each tense description of his state of mind slips out across the table. The table is filled with piles of papers and objects. A boombox, a bottle of AZT, a jar of Advil. Remember, you can't take aspirin or Tylenol while on AZT. There's an old smiley mug with pens and scissors and a bottle of Xanax for when the brain goes loopy. There's a Sony tape recorder that contains a half-used cassette of late-night sex talk, fears of gradual dying anger, dreams, and someone speaking Cantonese. In this foreign language it says, My mind cannot contain all that I see. I keep experiencing the sensation that my skin is too tight. Civilization is expanding inside of me. Do you have a room with a better view? I'm experiencing the X-ray of civilization. The minimum speed required to break through the Earth's gravitational pull is seven miles a second. Since economic conditions prevent us from gaining access to rockets or spaceships, we would have to learn to run awful fast to achieve escape from where we're all heading. One of my favorite things about his writing is the way that he, he, he patches things together in a similar way that he uses pictures. Yeah, because a lot of his, um, a lot of his visual artwork is... I don't know if I would describe it as collage, but it definitely has like cut and paste elements to it. He used a lot of like archival images, like incorporated into his paintings. So, and also with Three Teens Kill Four, you know, a lot of that music was was started with um, David's like collection, vast collection of voice recordings. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, finding and, somewhere to put them. He used a, a little tape recorder very frequently which is uh, something that's produced a lot of work that's come out subsequently, like now. You know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the books that have been published in the last five or ten years 
are often like transcriptions of, of voice recordings he made. Yeah, from when he was traveling across America. Yeah. And France. Yeah. Yeah, because he stayed and he spent time in France. And <laughs> yeah, everything. yeah, I think because he still lived in France. And it's interesting, too, because with Three Teen Skill 4, we keep mentioning this, this is a band he was in where uh, what he did was he contributed uh, mu- not, not so much music from instruments or anything, but he would contribute like sound collage. So, uh, for example, there's a really, really good. The, my favorite track on the, they've only got one record it's called no motive 13 skill 4 um and the best track on it i think is their cover of shaka khan's tell me something good and um they do this crazy version of it where he uses recordings that he took from the television he just like held the, the cassette dictaphone up to the television and it was when reagan was shot when the, the guy tried to assassinate ronald reagan what was that 83 or something somewhere around then or was it even maybe later? Was it in his second term? I can't remember. But anyway, there was... Do you, do you remember? remember? No, I don't remember either. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But anyway, someone I tried to remember that it was... Who cares? <laughs> they tried to do it to uh, impress Jodie Foster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And yeah, so this, this guy tried to kill Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan basically survived and also constantly uh, in these tapes that he's using in like the, the the track tell me something good by 13 skill 4 starts with someone reporting back to like uh the the event you know like uh, they're interviewing a guy who was like a, a cop or something or someone else on like a security detail yeah from so- the the recording is like uh the, well the news piece that he's recording is like trying to kind of like glamorize the Wait, no, glamorize and also, like, ridicule the assassination attempt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, th- there's a, s- a small clip of Reagan saying, like, honey, I forgot to duck. Is yeah, that, yeah, like, yeah. The well, famous... it's not a clip. It's someone relating the story who was yeah, in the yeah, hospital yeah. room. And right. they're talking about, they're basically making him out to be this, like, lovable character. And, and David Wojnarowicz has done this clever thing where he's, like, cut in laugh tracks on all of, like, any sort of like zinger that like you know they're relating the 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 kind of story that you know he comes in you and he put says. Should a little clip in. Well, at first when it first came up, the uh, two ambulances came with a police car in between them, and then Mr. Riggins' car came in, and the Secret Service walked in and kept saying, "Get out, get out, get out," and everybody was looking to know what was going on. Then he told us to get the hell out, and we saw his gun, and everybody got up and started moving. Then by that time, when I got to the door, Mr. Riggins walked by, and I was close enough I could have shook his hand. Now let's go back. Uh, was this walking in? Was the president actually walking in under his own power? No, there was two uh, secret service on each side, and the president was holding his right, holding his left chest up on his arm. But he was not carried in. He was not on a stretcher. No, he wasn't on a stretcher. Lynn Lofsinger, an official in the Reagan White House, confirmed a short time later that the president had indeed been shot. The president was shot once in the left chest. The bullet entered from the left side. He is conscious. He is in stable condition. Mrs. Reagan rushed to the hospital, and the president jokingly told her, Honey, I forgot to duck. They're great. And so that's the kind of thing that he he was using in pictures as well, I think. You know, Wojnarowicz used dollar bills, $10 bills, $50 bills, $100 bills. In his well, paintings. he also, like, some of his earlier work, he was... Well, I guess a lot of artists of this time were doing that. I know that um, Basquiat did a similar thing. But, um, yeah, Wojnarowicz kind of 
started painting on uh like so in my head I'm thinking Seinfeld <laughs> adverts <laughs> but that's just because I'm a little younger than you but like you know there's like fruit like the like I don't understand what you're talking about Seinfeld posters they you know like the like in a grocery yeah shop yeah like the signs oh right well, say like bananas 69 oh yeah, cents yeah, yeah or whatever yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you what would you call them advert advertisement i guess so i don't know yeah, yeah. whatever <laughs> throwing in a rogue seinfeld reference but like that's kind of <laughs> that's like my seinfeld is like what i well it's kind of what the world looks like right at this point <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> there's early seinfeld <laughs> In the 90s? Yeah, yeah like, the late 80s, late 80s early 90s. 80s, early yeah. 90s. Yeah. I guess, I guess in some ways, yeah. Like you I was born in rural England in 1990, <laughs> so my, you know, I'm like using the references that I have, which is Seinfeld and David Wojnarowicz. So David Wojnarowicz. We were by a storefront yesterday, and it was like a suit store. Uh, Joss A. Bank. Uh, and... There was a bunch of mannequins and suits and stuff, and there was just one big picture in one part of the window, and it was a guy in, like, a kind of, you know, blue suit, kind of casual-ish, yeah. I guess, but it was a full suit, and he just, like, had a cup of ice cream in his hand. <laughs> like, and that was it, and that was the only photograph visible in the entire store and storefront. Are you? So I guess it's, like... Ice cream business, ice cream <laughs> trip or something. Ice like cream ice for cream white break casual. <laughs> yeah, is it someone who is like ice so cream formal casual. they even have like a suit for having ice cream? <laughs> like, uh, or is it like even your formal uh, events don't get more formal than having ice cream? Either? That is the ultimate mixing of business and pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Putting on your Armani suit. And eating a cup of ice cream. Yeah, yeah, exactly. After you've read this book, you come away with like a a definite feeling more than a, uh, more than like a memory of necessarily specific points. Although there are images in it that really stand out for me. And that's like true of all of his work. Well, for me, I guess when I first read it, it really like punctured my version of America. Like, I had an image as, like, a British person. A British person. I had, like, I had this image of America that was, like, Seinfeld mm. and was, like, Barbie Generation Girls and was, like, you know, New York was this, like, clean, moneyed place. Uh, America was this place where, like, people get extremely wealthy. Mm. I mean, I was, like... 21 when I first encountered this book and I was always like I would love to live in New York it would be amazing and then you know I read this and even though this is like you know I'm in I was encountering this work like two or more decades after you know all of this has happened and after its publication it's still like you have you know that like this like cruel like violent neglect, like still was very much present in America because yeah. it suddenly gave me this like this like language to deal with, you know, the other side of America that I tried to like suppress a bit, which was this like, you know, it becomes very apparent again, like in this like post nine eleven 
Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. In fact, I would, I, I would, I'd say that one of the things he's saying about America is that that's one of the things that defines it. Is not it's not like a, a virtue thing. It's not like an evil thing necessarily. He describes it as a killing machine because it's like a machine. That, yeah, yeah. I think the use of like that description. But I want, and I, you know what? I want to actually like. Well, re- read I feel it. like when I read it, I had that moment that you've talked about loads, and it's like joked about a lot. Where you're like, oh, maybe maybe America are the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. Am I the baddie? Am I the bad? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like the I am. Am I the baddie moment? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah are we yeah. the baddies? Sure. <laughs> yeah. But like what he's saying as well is not even just that it's I think he's I think he's kind of like hitting it even like closer to the bone in a way. And and he does it in this in this particular bit that I want to read. So I want to read this this bit on that point in the shadow of the American dream. Soon all this will be picturesque ruins. Americans can't deal with death unless they own it. If they own it, they will celebrate it like in the Air Force Base Museum of the Atomic Bomb, where whole families of camera-toting tourists gather after the required ID security checks. In the gray-carpeted rooms, they walk the mazes of portable screens and platforms and enlarged photographs of death and incineration as seen from a discreet distance. The distance is far enough so you can't see the bodies, only the architecture. The tour in this museum is led by an ancient, matronly type who explains various levels of the bomb's invention with all the glad bearings of a parent who's just given birth to her first child. I couldn't deal with the clouds of perfume and the decaying personalities of the crowd, so I wandered off by myself to walk the maze. There were machines that clicked on, set off merely by my presence, and I'm walking through a paranoid blur of mechanical men's voices crawling out of hidden speakers, and image after image floating and shifting into fragments of large, grainy, black-and-white blow-ups of sullen men standing half-conscious with pride next to sinister fat canisters looking like overturned potbelly stoves. The voices of all the tone and texture of high school film soundtracks explaining the abstract motions of the sperm entering the side of the egg and fertilizing it, or the hunger and desire implicit in the tiny snake swallowing the egg ten times the size of its own head. Outside the shed-like buildings are the constant shrill vibrating sounds of jets taking off into the afternoon heat. Through a back window that overlooks the concrete edges of the runways, I see a playground with defunct miniature jets and spare, broken engines from spacecraft of the past decades. It's a playground for kids, and at that moment there's a family gathering among the hulls of bomber planes and World War II relics for a photo op. Standing in the shadow of a late model bomber cabled to the asphalt surface of the ground, a grandmotherly type gathers three kids in close to her body, fitting them in the frame of their parents' camera shutter. It's three generations of a family, and everything is so clean and abstract that I feel I'm dizzy, that I'm feeling dizzy. I'm watching all this surrounded by two screens showing speeded-up videos of a nuclear reactor being built by men the size of ants. They build and rebuild the reactors in 20 seconds flat. I'm thinking, if I owned the place, I'd hook the constant smell of rotting flesh into the air conditioning unit and have all the screens filled with speeded up films of rotting corpses and the family outside the window is moving to the next plane for the next photo. A man steps out from behind a doorway I hadn't noticed before and offers me his hand in greeting, asking if I'd like a cup of coffee. 
He looks like the kind of guy who'd one day end up in an alcohol detox center, studying snakes and insects. I turn away without a word. I'll never shake the hand of someone I might be fighting against in wartime. That's one of my favorite passages in this whole book, I think. I just love the fact that he's, like, going from place to place in, like, the the kind of Midwest and Southwest, because that's the context of this, uh, this chapter. He's, like, traveling around. He's driving around, and he's in... That, and at the time, I guess, that would have been the kind of heartland of the the, the so-called moral majority, you know, all those kinds of people. But the, the, it's, it's interesting because, like, the time that this is taking place is the beginning of the fundamentalist Christian right entering politics, really. It's like, not the very beginning, because that kind of started in the 70s, but it was like a real thing with Reagan. One of the ways that Reagan won and, like, swept into power like that, and not just Reagan, but the whole movement of that sort of... Uh, neoliberal, but like clothed in this kind of nationalist America first right wing, uh, you know, unity with in quotation marks. Well, they're going for a more wholesome. Right. Kind yeah. Of, yeah. But the way that they but the one of the reasons one of the ways that they mobilized these fundamentalist Christians as a political base, because previously they had been averse to getting involved in politics. They saw it as something like worldly and base and something they didn't want to be involved in. But Reagan really harnessed this energy largely by creating this demonized image of like, you know, like queers and stuff and, and, and junkies and black people and all these people they saw as like outside of the logic of the civic identity of an American, which was like white, Christian, traditional, you know, the nuclear family is all the stuff we talked about in the last episode. Right. And and so it's it to me, one of the things that makes this passage and this whole book, but particularly like this passage and passages like this interesting is you can see that he's like being forced into this fucking culture war. That's and, and like the culture where we're living in now, it's like disguising this like much more material thing. He's 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 taking this culture war uh, in stride in a way. He's going like you want to be, you know, it's like I'm an unwitting member. I'm an unwitting like uh, fighter in this culture war. If you want me to fight, I'll fucking fight. And he says, like, I'm not shaking this guy's hand. I'm not going to shake the hand of someone I'd be fighting against in wartime. Well, don't you think like I think that this particular well, I think the whole book, actually, and all of his work, but, like, uh, it's very, like, distilled in that particular passage that you've just chosen. But, like, I think that, I mean, I'm not American, and my, like, I've just talked about my relationship with American culture, and it's like, what's his name? Steve Martin, the guy with white hair. <laughs> yeah. Seinfeld. Yeah, and Seinfeld. So, like, <laughs> but I think that what he's ultimately addressing and what, like, the, this, like, you know, the what the culture war really is, is just like America's like inability to face death and yeah. to mourn. Yeah. 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 Which like you see in the AIDS crisis, you see like post nine 11 from what I can gather. I mean, like the first time I went to America was, you know, a few, yeah. Shall I tell, tell the a story? story? Yeah. It's oh a great God. story. Yeah. Uh, so like a few <laughs> days after nine 11, my dad, I don't know if he had this in America, but my dad was like straight on teletext and he booked us like cheap flights to America because he was like, we can go to America. It's so cheap to fly right now. <laughs> so we like so flew gross. to America. Like, so yeah, like the, the following spring and there was like a, 
armed guard. We went to Disney World and there was like an armed guard standing in front of the cockpit because this is when cockpits, were, it was just a curtain, standing in front of the, for the hot, and that's all I remember for the whole flight. And then um, I remember going to like SeaWorld and my dad was like, wow, America's like really patriotic. Because we obviously hadn't like, <laughs> yeah. we had, there was literally like this Shamu show. Where they're just like fucking projecting American flags and everything. But what that is is like a failure to mourn, a failure to like face death, and it's 100%. happening now as well. I mean, like with COVID, I mean, I think that Britain are like more or less following the American model, which mm. is now like, okay, we've done enough let's just kind of pretend that this isn't happening anymore. Yeah. And also too, like it's, it's interesting to me that he's like the first thing that I said and that the first line of that passage that I read is that Americans can't deal with death unless they own it. You know, it's like he's, he's trying to say that like underneath this like culture war veneer where people are trying to frame it in terms of like traditional values and all this bullshit that's just like surface level underneath it. It's like a sort of economic relationship He's pointing out that there's like, it's not just, I mean, I'm not saying that David Wojnarowicz is a communist or anything, but you know what I mean? Like, he's pointing out that there's a material reality underneath this veneer of the culture war, and the culture war is obscuring that. And that's the fact that these people have nothing, you know, like the people who are getting shit on and demonized are dying for lack of, like, access to health care. They're the vulnerable. They're the vulnerable ones. They're the ones who are, who are like, forced into these situations where they're just like outcast and they're not even considered fully American in a way. And, and it's a relationship that's almost transactional for these other people, you know, like the, the, the kind of white wealthy moral majority in all these people, they, they're not for them. It's like they've bought their way out of being vulnerable. They've bought their way out of dying from things like AIDS. They've bought their way out from being vulnerable to crime and stuff like that, but they still, live in terror because the entire edifice of the American culture war and of America itself, of, of like that idea of America, at least the image of America that it projects to the rest of the world and that it believes in so much. It fucking, it's really like really, really blue pilled. So like hyper blue pilled that it's, it's, it's just that it's just edifice. And it's a, it's, it's like fantasy basically. And that fantasy is poisonous because it really puts you at such a distance, not just from other people who aren't like you, but from yourself, from your real self, from your own situation in reality. Yeah, well, I mean, it takes you completely out of reality. Yeah. Because, like, it, it, you just, all you believe in is, like, exponential growth and, like, and you try and apply that to yourself. Yeah. And if you, like, think you're going to live forever, then, of course, you're going to be terrified of death. Yeah, yeah. And vulnerability generally. Yeah. And the reason I think that, like, this is so interesting in the period that he captures so well is because, you know, we're, we're, we're at the end here of the Cold War. I mean, it's over. The, like, the, the Soviet Union is, is gone, and there is no big boogeyman to point to. America can't justify doing all of the things it does as part of this fight against communism, which is this, like, rampant threat. I mean, Reagan did that. He ramped it up big time. You know, and, and it, it justified uh, increasing the military budget in the United States like, hugely. You know, if you look at like a graph of like the military budget across the decades of the 20th century, you can see that after a while, I mean, it's just like they, it dipped, you know, because uh, in the 70s and stuff in the 60s, because they didn't they didn't feel like they, they didn't feel like it was evident. I think that the Soviet Union was probably crumbling, 
even though they tried to make out like that wasn't the case. But in, then Reagan, you know, created this whole idea of the evil empire and everything. But then when that started falling apart, this period between like the end of the, the fall of the Soviet Union and before 9-11, you know, this is what I was trying to say in the last episode as well, is like you see this, they need this boogeyman. They need a justification for this fantasy. They need an other. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just like huge othering yeah and they need to project this fantasy of themselves as like uniquely strong uniquely good and uniquely invulnerable yeah and because one of the things that that does if you're not vulnerable to other people to death to injury to poverty if you're not vulnerable to these things it feeds into the the kind of really deeply neoliberal notion that we're all like these self-sufficient individuals and that's like the, the the image that america projects is of a country full of these like isolated discrete Units, these atomized. The one tribe nation. Yes, the one tribe nation, exactly. David calls it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And like, it means that it also, if you're not vulnerable, it means that you don't need anybody else, right? And so that's the diametrically opposed view, worldview even, forget about just politics, of like any other kind of thing that's even vaguely left. You don't even have to be like a socialist or a communist. You don't even have to have consistent politics to believe implicitly intrinsically real deep down that we need each other that we need each other as people i can't get on without you you can't get on without me i need you because i can't i don't know how to grow food i don't know how to build buildings i don't know how to drive lorries i don't know how to do all these things i need other people i also need other people because i can't just be alone we're social animals yeah well i guess people have like like capitalism and like the monetary system is like so like people are so like you know, it's like so in their brain mm. that you're, you think that you think that self-sufficiency is like having enough money to pay for someone to do these things for you. Right. Rather than like realizing that there is like a human being behind each one of your, you know, each one of your needs and your decisions and your purchases. I, I mean, you know, what I'm basically saying in a nutshell is that I think that this this the formation and like realization of this particular type of ideology of the individual came to like a a new kind of prominence in this period. And I feel like that is, uh, you know, grown to like this monstrous proportion now. And I wanted to know like what you thought like about that. Like, I I don't know. Do you like agree? Do you think that there's like, yeah, because we're basically living well in America, at least, I mean, again, like, like in a, like they, the people in power, I think I said this last time, they like used the AIDS crisis to like cleanse New York basically yeah. of this like, you know, this like social surplus. Yeah, 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 exactly. But Norm, like, you know, you're there now. I mean, we're not we're not there. You're our American correspondent. <laughs> like, I mean, I agree with like the spirit of what a lot of you're, you're saying, but like I would disagree with just some like details and stuff like uh, but I mean, in spirit, I agree with what you're saying. Like they, they kind of use that and like the drug, like the crack epidemic, yeah. you know, they exacerbated both of them and they didn't mind that it affected like uh, these kind of invisible communities to them that they would have just as uh, easily done without and were fine with trying to demonize. But uh, I think key to it all is that they didn't, you know, wipe them away. They just decimated them, you know, Uh but uh, yeah, absolutely. The notion of like the individual and whatnot has has driven uh, 
sort of neoliberal culture. Um, but it's also kind of uh, an illusion itself because the whole idea is not this sort of like uh, radical individualism. It's actually kind of like a uniformity that people want to, you know, but like being free to become like just like everybody else, essentially. It's like kind of the uh, the current sort of libertarian dream, you know? Uh, <clears throat> so, so it's strange, you know, because the culture kind of promotes the sort of uh, uniformity, uh, and, and, but uh, the, the sort of notions are sort of libertarian uh, and individualist, but... Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point, like, actually. You know, it's clearly just more so done to kind of dissuade people from thinking collectively, uh, thinking about a- operating collectively, because they want you to operate collectively just as a uh, as a collective that doesn't exert any sort of agency. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, and they use the very dream that, oh, if you just try... <laughs> then the these sorts of barriers don't exist and you can become this ruling class, you know? Right, yeah. Uh, and it's obviously uh, such an illusion. But uh, the ways that uh, the, the AIDS crisis kind of parallels COVID is the similar way that, you know, you had this sort of illness that emerged and it affected mostly uh, people that were struggling in one way or another already uh, because of other societal issues, you know? Mm. Um, Like, it didn't affect uh, black people and poor people more in America because of, like, the amount of melanin in their skin or something like that. (laughs) It, like, attracts COVID more, believe it or not. It it was, like, socioeconomic issues. And it was uh, a similar thing with AIDS. Like, it affected... uh, It affected gay people. It affected people who were homeless. Like, uh, it it affected a lot of communities that uh, were uh, already being underserved by capitalism. And specifically, when you're talking about things like healthcare. Uh, and it's just a shame that they continue to be because we all continue to be because largely not much has changed <laughs> in yeah. our healthcare situation yeah, since then. Yeah. And the way that like s- certain sorts of uh, solutions like could have been kind of presentable, uh, but they weren't really pursued because either the powers that be or... Uh, perhaps the historical moment without like disturbing the government structures uh, didn't really have the place to sort of radically uh, start to care for its own citizens in that sort Mm. of way, just because they're now being affected by this thing. You know, Uh, we did it to a certain degree, obviously with both, you know, but with both, there were also periods of, uh, neglecting the thing, the steps that we should have done for various reasons of, you know, a cost analysis of whether or not it was worth it to help these particular communities that were being affected. Right. Uh, and it wasn't until 
people were worried that everyone was being affected, that we started to even do anything here like lockdowns and whatnot. Uh, but we never really properly did the things, obviously, that we needed to to address the overall effect of what was happening here uh, economically and from a healthcare standpoint. And we didn't really do it uh, in the 80s and even the 90s with, with AIDS, but certainly in the 80s. Uh, with AIDS, with the larger healthcare issues, the larger stigmatization of uh, LGBT people here in America, um, and of course, through both of these, uh, the the structural issues of of poverty, uh, which have obviously gotten much worse mm. with income inex- inequality exploding. Um, but yeah, this is fascinating to see the way that uh, he kind of increasingly throughout his life realized his place was getting deeper and deeper into the hole of being uh, cast away by society. Yeah. yeah. Uh, first, just because of the way he thought and then realizing uh, and then, of course, like his sexuality uh, and then you know, have, dealing with AIDS, both, uh, you know, his friends dying, you know, a big part of a lot of the powerful stuff are about his friends who are dying. And then, of course, coming to grips with himself dying. The fear thing he talks about in that uh, first passage that I read is really upsetting and, and kind of like chilling because, uh, I mean, I guess uh, it's interesting because it's, it's being revisited now in this country uh, in one place, there was a, a Channel 4 show called It's a Sin, and uh, it's a, it was written by Russell T. Davis, who was the guy who kind of rejuvenated Doctor Who, the, the, the more recent, like the last 20 years of Doctor the Who. The heavy hand of Doctor Who is in It's a Sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is <laughs> like good, it's, though. It's, it, there's nods. There's like heavy nods to it. Yeah, to it's, it's, yeah. A, it's a really good series. Yeah, and one of the things that, they, that, that um, in the writing of It's a Sin that Russell T. Davis kind of foregrounds is that sense of like being part of this fucking horrible Russian roulette with your life. Like, especially in the beginning when it was unclear what the cause of HIV AIDS was, whether they, before they knew that it was a sexually transmitted virus and, and there were all these different pressures from outside of the gay community that seemed like they were just repressive measures against gay people being gay and and living their lives. So one of the main characters says like, you know, I'm not stupid. You know, I know it's like these people are just trying to scare us and stop us from having sex. Yeah, right. And I'm not going to I'm not going to succumb to that. And that was, you know, one of the ways that Well, one of the big differences, I guess, with between well I, there's loads of differences between covid and i don't, um, I don't want to like draw too many similarities no, no. between the two like viral <laughs> no, no, epidemics no. because there the aren't that many all, yeah. but what i mean I'm, I'm talking more about like the way in which like the culture has received and processed the the like health like aspect of it is i don't know if it's the same in the states but this kind of reflects on what you were saying just now but we have had in the uk from the from around like mid March from the first lockdown side, this like this like grating we're all in it together message. 
which like Ben and I were working in a supermarket, you know, for the, for most of all of last year. Yeah. Yeah. And we were, that message is just like simply not true because of all the things that you were saying earlier. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that is something, you know, the opposite happened with the AIDS crisis, Mm. but, but ultimately like the same thing is happening. Like these, like, and more so in America, America, because you don't have an NHS, but like these, these things like have done in the past and will continue to like kill, like, you know, these it's, vulnerable people who are the same, pretty much like the same, the demographic of like the vulnerable is pretty much the same. Yeah. I mean, it's because they're vulnerable to begin yeah. with. That's what makes them a demographic in and, the first yeah, place. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and we never address those things. Right. Yeah. Exactly. People, wore their AIDS ribbons and we put a lot of money into research eventually and stuff like that. Uh, and we combated that specific disease of AIDS if you have enough money and resources. Right. Uh, but, you know, uh, we, 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 we didn't combat any of the other ways that, uh, as Warner Ovid said, like, we live in a, uh, what he said, something like, uh, he contracted the disease, but he also contracted a disease society or something. Yeah, yeah. He contracted a disease society. When I was told that I'd contracted this virus, it didn't take me long to realize that I'd contracted a diseased society as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and that's what I mean is like and and the thing that's the thing that he's talking about, the disease that he's talking about, the social disease, is it presents itself for people who are vulnerable in the first instance as just a, a form of violence that's sort of unusual because it isn't direct. It isn't, it's physical, but not in a, a direct way. It's not immediately physical. It's not immediately violent in a way. And that's the violence of neglect. Yeah, it's the violence of neglect. I mean, when, when the state uh, fails to protect the citizens of its country, lets them die of a disease that's, you know, fairly uh, preventable, and or like there's at least measures they could be taking to mitigate the effects of this virus, both HIV AIDS and COVID. I think that's the thing that these two things have in common. They're not really similar in any other way, except yeah. for the fact that they unearth all of these like tensions. That's in an society. incredibly huge way to be similar, though. Yeah, that they're they ravaging like communities. The rock, we know we can do something about them, and we don't. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because that's in the real society. <laughs> Don't do the things that are evident that we could do to help and protect each other. Right. Because we'd rather, whatever, send a penis to space. (laughs) (laughs) Make sure that if you're rich enough, you can put your penis in space. (laughs) (laughs) But because, because you don't want to die, because you want the penis to live forever and all around the world instead of just die, you know? Important thing to remember about Jeffrey Epstein, you know, <laughs> uh, he, it wasn't just the things that he did in life. You know, he also wanted to find a way to cryogenically freeze his penis to make it live forever. Uh, <laughs> did he find he a never, way? He was unfortunately his life was cut short <laughs> Unfor- before yeah. he was able to achieve that dream for all of us. Yeah. Well, it's but frozen yeah, I mean, in our memories. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, boy. We all have Jeffrey Epstein's penis frozen in, inside of us. Oh, um, my God. Oh, Lord. And, yeah, so, like, we didn't, America didn't really see uh, 
like we didn't really take on that task of dealing with AIDS until really Magic Johnson, you know, right. and that was like the mid nineties. That was like ninety two, I think, was when it, he. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and obviously, AIDS had been around for a long time. You know, like uh, the first real celebrity was uh, the Rock Hudson, uh, and he died in the mid eighties. Uh, but he was a closeted gay man. And so it, you know, it didn't really change this narrative going around that this was like a gay cancer. This was like a gay disease that only gay people got. Uh, Arthur Ashe was a, uh, Arthur Ashe was a famous one that also caused like some, uh, uh, things to happen, and so, so did like the, I, I believe it was Ryan White. Ryan was the, White, yeah, was yeah. The kid, the kid, yeah, the yeah. hemophilia, and the thing with oh, them, just like when they had the good AIDS. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The phrase they used for both Arthur Ashe and Ryan White was that they got it through no fault of their own. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and whatever. I mean, I'm assuming that the like, you know, obviously the only fault you can't like, you know. Uh, get in a fight and end up like stabbing yourself. You know, it's like obviously they're saying that like sex, promiscuity, homosexuality is some is is a fault. You know, in that in that it like inherent in saying that sort of thing. They're saying the loud part loud. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 and, yeah. You know, uh, it wasn't until magic, and then by the time magic had like solidified that he came post Arthur Ashe, post no fault of their own. Uh, and he was like, you know, like, for, well, you know, if you read the things, you, you know, uh, he says about it, you know, first everyone was like, oh, I didn't know Magic was gay. I didn't know Magic. Are you gay? You know, uh, uh, but no, he was just very sexually promiscuous because yeah. he was like a famous rich athlete. Uh, and he's alive. He has no trace of AIDS in his body. You know, yeah. he was there for the entire timeline of us basically curing AIDS. Yeah. Uh, and he came in a decade after we knew that it was an issue and was killing people. Uh, right. But it was a gay disease until then, so we didn't put it into high gear, and we don't put it into high gear now for, say, uh, you know, other countries that it ravages like it does, like it passed through uh, Africa and South Africa well, actually, in the last, last decade. When we the Bush went administration to, stalled uh, on doing it. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but like, I feel like we haven't mentioned like the work of ACT UP yet. Right. And yeah. um, mm-hmm. I mean, like they made it something that kind of couldn't be ignored in New York, at least. And I think in San Francisco. ACT UP is the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Yes. Yeah, they were like a, a protest group, a grassroots protest group, right? They, but they, yeah, they were incredible. Like one of the one of the most successful like protest movements of the century, I guess. Well, there was a lot then, but anyway. But what I wanted to say, um, I don't want to just speak loads about ACT UP because that's not like that present in Close to the Knives. So in 2018, there was a the first ever, as far as I know, retrospective of um, Vojnarovic's work um, in the Whitney in New York. And we went in 2018 and there was actually, so um, ACT UP asked or demanded rather that they 
put up this like additional uh, accompanying text in the exhibition to kind of draw attention to the fact that like the AIDS crisis like isn't over. It's just like happening in a different place right. in like a less visible to us way now. It's mm-hmm. and, and that to me is like another thing that makes this so great, this piece of work so great is that it encapsulates this thing that's happening with the rise of neoliberalism and this sudden stratification of the value of human lives and which ones are expendable and which ones are even visible. You also have the kind of export of problems the same way that you have the export of production at the same time that the economy is becoming more and more reliant on foreign workers and, uh, you know, all of the production moving outside of the country. Uh, you know, you have a, a similar situation where they're they're exporting uh, the sickness as well. I mean, like the, the neglect takes place once you had ACT UP and groups like ACT UP demanding movement from the government and from the FDA to create a situation where they could access, where people could access the drugs they needed and where the drugs were being approved more quickly and where the development was happening more quickly. And ACT UP had a real huge role in actually educating themselves the members of act up did a great job of of creating like of of making themselves knowledgeable about medicine and pharmacology and so i think that it's interesting that as act up became a powerful organ for demanding action and so in the united states people began slowly measure by measure to fight back and to get the drugs they needed and to to curb the crisis of aids the neglect moved. It was basically, you know, it was basically outsourced. It was outsourced. outsourced. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They outsourced to the crisis in a way. Sorry. Well, what I was going to say about ACT UP is like, I think a lot of its success was down to the fact that like, there were a lot of like wealthy white gay men who were like, you know, high up and instrumental in ACT UPs. And they, they kind of were only really listened to as far as everything that I've like watched and read about the AIDS crisis when those people like I think his name is Peter Staley the guy who was a what's it called when you work in the place where they like throw the slips in the air and it's like oh in the stock market on the stock market (laughs) Peter Staley was like a white like affluent gay man right who became like a prominent member of ACT UP which was great but it's also like you know it's very telling that it was when these like wealthy white men involved themselves and, and were coming out. And, and like, activism. Yeah, 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 exactly, that it became more successful. I think this brings us around nicely to uh, this other passage that I really wanted to read in the chapter titled uh, Do Not Doubt the Dangerousness of the 12-Inch Politician. Um, and this bit of text in Close to the Knives is in bold print at the end of the chapter. And it also features in one of his more famous paintings... All right, so this text um, that's, uh, that's on this painting. If I had a dollar for health care, I'd rather spend it on a baby or innocent person with some defect or illness not of their own responsibility, not some person with AIDS, says the health care official on national television. And this is in the middle of an hour-long video of people dying on camera because they can't afford the limited drugs available that might extend their lives. And I can't even remember what this official looked like because I reached in through the TV screen and ripped his face in half. And I was diagnosed with AIDS recently, and this was after the last few years of losing count of the friends and neighbors who've been dying slow, vicious, and unnecessary deaths because fags and dykes and junkies are expendable in this country. 
If you want to stop AIDS, shoot the queers, says a politician in Texas on the radio, and his press secretary later claims that the politician was only joking and didn't know the microphone was turned on, and besides, they didn't think it would hurt his chances for re-election anyways. And I wake up every morning in this killing machine called America, and I'm carrying this rage like a blood-filled egg, and there's a thin line between the inside and the outside, a thin line between thought and action, and that line is simply made up of blood and muscle and bone, and I'm waking up more and more from daydreams of tipping Amazonian blow darts in infected blood and spitting them at the exposed necklines of certain politicians or government healthcare officials, or those thinly disguised walking swastikas that wear religious garments over their murderous intentions, or those rabid strangers parading against AIDS clinics in the nightly news suburbs. There's a thin line, a very thin line, between the outside and the inside, and I've been looking all my life at the signs surrounding us in the media or on people's lips, the religious types outside St. Patrick's Cathedral, shouting to the men and women in the gay parade, you won't be here next year, you'll get AIDS and die, ha ha, and the areas of the USA where it's possible to murder a man, and when brought to trial, one has only to say that the victim was a queer and that he tried to touch you, and the courts will set you free, and the difficulties that a bunch of Republican senators have in Albany with supporting an anti-violence bill that includes sexual orientation as a category of crime victims. There's a thin line, a very thin line, and as each T-cell disappears from my body, it's replaced by 10 pounds of pressure, 10 pounds of rage, and I focus that rage into non-violence violent resistance, but that focus is starting to slip. My hands are beginning to move, independent of self-restraint, and the egg is starting to crack. America! America! America seems to understand and accept murder as a self-defense against those who would murder other people, and it's been murder on a daily basis for nine, count them, nine long years, and we're expected to pay taxes to support this public and social murder, and we're expected to quietly and politely make house in this windstorm of murder, but I say there's certain politicians that had better increase their security forces, and there's religious leaders and healthcare officials that had better get bigger fucking dogs and higher fucking fences and more complex security alarms for their homes, and queer bashers better start doing their work from inside howitzer tanks, because the thin line between the inside and the outside is beginning to erode, and at the moment, I'm a 37-foot-tall, 1,172-pound man inside this six-foot body, and all I can feel is the pressure. All I can feel is is the pressure and the need for release. Oh, Jesus Christ. Gives me gives me goosebumps. Yeah. If that don't do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. This is what I mean is like I recently described uh, close to the knives when in an, in an in, in another interview <laughs> that I was doing, but I described it as like you know like a a window onto the violence and neglect of America that you like cannot turn away from, and you kind of mm-hmm. said earlier like it's it's a book that like I mean my brain is like garbage it's just a sieve and I remember nothing, but but like I definitely. Don't forget like that from the book, even if I yeah. don't remember specific details or whatever. Like I remember that it gave me this this like it smashed through this fucking window on America that and it, and it gave me this like version of it that I can't turn away from. And that is one hundred percent what's so great about like this whole book and the project is like one of the things he's doing. Like I was saying, like he by by taking on 
this war against people who were different from the idealized version of what like a white suburban or rural American is, that moral majority. It's like he's really just like like shooting a rocket launcher into the conversation, just going like, no, we're here, we're Americans too. You know what I mean? Like, like it or not, whether we like it or not, you know what I mean? Like, this is this is America. Like, America might also be like fucking cows in Iowa and shit like that and cornfields in Nebraska, but it's also this. I mean, this is America as well. Yeah, it's also cruising and... Yeah, yeah. And, and dying of fucking AIDS because your yeah, government yeah. is neglecting you to death. Exactly. Well, I mean, I feel like it speaks for itself. Like you said, it's like kind of uh, talking about everything that we've been saying, um, all kind of wrapped into one. Uh, but I also love the the line he says where, uh, you know, towards the end, the the way that it kind of, there's only so much that you can deal with this before you it, it starts slipping into rage, you know? Yeah. As every T-cell disappears from my body, it's... Uh, replaced by 10 pounds of pressure, 10 pounds of rage. And I focus that onto nonviolent resistance, but that focus is starting to slip. Uh, and like simultaneously, like you're of course dealing with the actual, it's like you're dealing with the actual death. Uh, yeah. and, and like focusing your entire energy on that when all you want to do is kind of rage to kind of solve the fact that people are even being put into this situation. Uh, and it's something that I can understand. Uh, it's, it's a very difficult thing to work on issues when they are simultaneously uh, affecting you too. Um, and like dealing with the, like it's just a conversation I've been having a lot with friends recently just because there's so much emotional trauma going on right now uh, that, uh, you know, dealing with trying to work on issues while simultaneously being like subject to all of this uh, yeah. is so incredibly uh, grating uh, and it can be almost more psychologically damaging than, than not doing it. I feel uh, to a degree like, uh, and just suppressing the, 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 what you see around you and whatnot. Uh, but I mean, again, for someone like this, who's kind of been thrust into the situation and sees it for what it is. Uh, it's just, it's, it's very powerful. And he says that phrase a few times yeah. throughout this, like uh, throughout the, the entire book, when he's talking about powerful experiences that, that, that kind of put, uh, put these things into perspective. He, he talks about being, you know, a, a giant seven seven hundred pound seven hundred foot tall man, uh, and all he can feel is the pressure and the need for release, uh, and the way that he bookends these powerful passages with that uh, really slams home every time you read it. Um, but through reading it, that this passage was also the one for me that uh, really hit the hardest, and he, he really encapsulates these ideas we've been talking about uh, really well in this, especially in the beginning of it, and then kind of the overall uh, tenor of his uh, stuff afterwards Yeah, well, in he's, the second half. He's it. bringing in, like, the two... He's, like, with, with the image of, like, the blood-filled the blood filled egg and, like, him being a, this, like, giant monstrous creature, he's... he's 
it's really like the vulnerability and the rage really come together in these like two extremely powerful images and like this whole book and his whole practice his whole you know all of his work is about like vulnerability and rage and how to like you know i mean he wrote close to the knives while he was dying basically yeah you know and it's it, it, it's incredible yeah and, and and it's you know i want to just call back to something we were talking about earlier about the idea of individualism and what role that plays in this construction of American identity that he's writing against. Yeah. Cause you were saying you made a very good point where that notion of individuality and individualism is really just another version of conformity. I mean, it's like, that's the problem with capitalism is that, and, and that's, he nails it in a way that isn't like Marxist or anything. It's, it's just, it's just like a very human response to that where he talks about, a pre-invented existence, the pre-invented world, because basically you're not really an individual because, uh, you know, the, basically capitalism reduces us to these economic units that are all isolated, atomized and discrete. And, and what you're supposed to aim for in this like fucking brave new world of capitalist utopia, uh, the, the, especially in like the kind of neoliberal period, which this is the beginning of, is this idea that you can choose things. Yeah, it's about choice. That's like, that's the the preeminent uh, like gauge, the yardstick by which you measure freedom in American terms, according to this version of America, right? Is the ability to choose. But the thing is, is that if someone gives you the choice of one of like a million different ways you can be or a million different things you can have or a million different things you can consume, you haven't produced any of those. They're not new. They're not true. They're not specific to you. They're not like unique in any way. They're just pre-invented things. And there might be a million of them. And the sheer number of choices that you're presented with might make you feel like because you've made an unusual choice that makes you an individual, you know, cause I chose to dress this way. Cause I chose to like express myself through this car because I wore like my makeup this way because I got my hair cut like this. That makes me an individual. These are the things that add up to me being an individual. And that isn't true. That's the lie. And everybody knows it's almost like fucking pat to say it where it's like, you know, you can't consume your way into individuality. You can't like buy your own happiness. You know, you can't, there's no, that's no way into it really. Well, the and, internet is really sh amplified. And it's that. amplified that to a, like an unbelievable monstrous degree. But yeah, like, right. and, and the thing that really does make you an individual. And I think that like any sort of question of like, politics or culture that's in any way revolutionary, even if it's unwillingly revolutionary, like Wojnarowicz is, I think, you know, like he's been, he's been thrust into this situation. He's not like asking for revolution. He's not like hungry for some sort of, you know, like a, like systemic change or anything. He's just got to do it to survive. Yeah, he's being it's a reactionary of, right. and he's surviving. Yeah. yeah. He's ha he has to survive. Right. And, and, the, and, but any kind of, any kind of revolutionary stance in this world is going to have to eventually come to the question of like, what is the real individual then? And I don't even think we can know what it is without first addressing these things you know, you can't like be like in this, what he calls like the killing machine of America and be thinking about being an individual. And the thing that's beautiful about this book is that he somehow manages to do it. You know, like this book is ultimately some beautiful, wonderful expression of individuality through all of this anguish. And he's doing it by speaking on behalf of a whole community of people you know it's like that's the thing that makes it so amazing and it's and to me 
it's very telling that the only way to really achieve real individuality, to really be a person, not just like a fucking number, not an atom, not just like some fucking consumer, is to be like confronting the very material fucking conditions of your existence. And he's, even if you're thrust into that, and it's, it's terrible and tragic, it's horrible, and it's just so fucking sad that it's taken this experience for this man to produce this. But it's like, at least he did. It's like, thank fucking God that he did. Thank God he did it. And like, to me, the funny thing is, if you look at American culture at large, it's like, those are the moments in American culture that really stand out and that are the most brilliant, is when you've got these people in an unbearable situation where something's got to give. The pressure on them is so great that they're going to violently explode if something doesn't give. And like... That's where all of this amazing culture comes from. And it's kind of sad and tragic that that's one of the things that defines America. I mean, the blues is a great example of it. Yeah, no, you know? it's Yeah, I always find it's, I don't know, it's, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> It's like yeah, you yeah. can't, yeah. It's impossible to reckon with the fact that, like, you know, especially with you and I, because, you know, with your music taste and my taste in art and stuff, like, it comes from this, like, violence and this neglect and this, these horrible conditions. But, like, you know, at least it exists. Like, someone said something recently about, like, how uh, their struggles didn't define them, it didn't, didn't, like, shape them in a way that uh, it made them strive for something better and beyond their struggles uh, in as much as it gave them the perspective that, like, why am I struggling? Why do people have to struggle? Why do right. we live in a world that has to allow this to happen? Right. Yeah, it's like the opposite of the uh, bootstraps thing. it just thing. made you that much more motivated to do something and, and, and to change it, you know? Exactly. And, and ultimately, the thing he produces is so uniquely American to me, you know? Like, it's like it because it's so steeped in the time and place in which it was written and, and lived. And, you know, I guess, like, in closing, I think it would be nice to, to talk about, like, one of the more tender parts of the book. And it's probably the saddest and he talks about his close friend, the, the artist and photographer, Peter Hujar. I just want to say a bit about this, like to give it a bit of context. Are you going to talk about the part where he's photographing Hujar on his deathbed? Yeah, we, we can do that. Yeah, so, find it. so yeah. yeah, so from what I've seen online, uh, the the passage we just read, the if I had a dollar. Yeah. Uh, that John Legend on. turned into a song. <laughs> <laughs> you mean, uh oh, you should delete that because it was actually Aloe Black. Not John Legend. <laughs> well, actually, no, 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 no. Sorry. I'm thinking of I Need a Dollar. Were you thinking of I Need a Dollar? I was thinking of I Need a Dollar, yeah, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. I fucked so up, so. We'll be deleting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the, the image of it that I've seen that's in the Whitney Museum, and then it was. In because uh, I was trying to find it, but I could only find galleries where it was, and I believe if it's not in his ex- exhibit that you guys saw right now, it's owned by Gracie Mansion, which yeah, is yeah, like yeah. where the yeah. <laughs> where the mayor of fucking New York lives. Oh my God. Uh, but well, yeah, Gracie the, Mansion was like what a it small is, gallery It's a whole bunch the... of dollar bills. It's what? What was that? The the work that I see it. It's a whole bunch of dollar bills. It's 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 six. It's nine photos of Peter Hujar on his deathbed. Right. Yeah. 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 I know uh, the piece that you mean. And then it's surrounded with a border of dollars. Yeah. And there's like white 
and red uh, imagery or, uh, around the border. Is, the, is it, it the is one where the photograph the is like the... is like high contrast? Like it's like he's print like reprinted it onto the my mm. knowledge of like the technical terms for making art are like very, but there's also a series just of like the photographs that he took of his body because what he's doing and what I wanted to like preface your, uh, your reading with is that his taking photos of Peter Hajar on his deathbed is referencing Hajar's very famous portrait of Candy Darling on her deathbed. I guess we don't have to, maybe I'm just showing off my art history, but (laughs) Do it. Flex. What are you Flex. talking about? I don't know. So I think the piece that you're just about to read is making reference to a section of Close to the Knives where um, David is photographing Peter Hajar on his deathbed, which is kind of like, uh, I guess, like a cyclical process because I think he's referencing um, Hajar's famous portraits of the Warhol like factory star Candy Darling on her deathbed. Yeah, which is also the cover of Anthony and the Johnsons album. Yeah, yeah, that, right. That, the, yeah, I love that. I love the like the constant reference and like uh, repetition. Well, this is it. I mean, they're like connecting. You're making connections. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So yeah, a little a little background on this last passage that I'm going to read here. This will be the last one. We'll kind of start closing it up here. Um, Peter Hujar, uh, yeah, this is basically David's, uh, telling of the death of Peter Hujar. I can't form words these past few days, sometimes thinking I've been drained of emotional content from weeping or fear. I keep doing these impulsive things, like trying to make a film that records the rituals in an attempt to give grief form. It's almost winter and I drive west of New York to film myself bathing in a lake in some of the only virgin forests left on the eastern seaboard. I hold a Super 8 camera in my hands, and spin around and around in the woods, thinking of dervishes, thinking of the intoxication of freedom witnessed in death. Now I've driven north of New York City to the gravesite on a gray day filled with random spots of rain on a dirty windshield. All those birds' nests, high in the winter trees, everything rich and black and wet, and brown, the serious, rich darkness of his photographs. I'm kicking around the cemetery mud among huge, lifeless tractors, and the ravines they've made strewn with boulders and wet earth, talking to him. First, walking around, trying to find him was so difficult I started laughing nervously. Maybe I can't find you, Peter. And these erratic pacings back and forth from his ground soil back to the car, cigarettes lit, camera retrieved from the back seat, and brought back to the unmarked gravesite for a picture of Neil's flowers. He loved flowers. Loved them. Months and months of illness, and the house was always, f- always filled with flowers. Some so big and wild, they didn't even look like flowers. More like beings from some lunar slopes. All these erratic movements, till finally I stopped myself, forced myself to contain my movements. Walking backward and forward at the same time, I realized how rattled I was. I was talking to him again. I get so amazingly self-conscious talking to him, a thousand thoughts at once. The eye hovers in space, inches from the back of my head. Seeing myself, seeing him, or the surface extension of him, the wet, tossed earth, and further, seeing his spirit, 
his curled body rising invisible just above the ground, his eyes full and seeing, him behind me looking over my shoulder at himself rising over my shoulder, watching me look at the fresh-turned earth where he lies buried. I try talking to him, wondering if he knows I'm there, if he sees me. I know he sees me. He's in the wind, in the air around me. He covers the fields in a fine mist. He's in his home in the city. He's behind me. It's wet and cold, but I like it like that. Like the way it numbs my fingers, makes them white and red at the knuckles. Strangers pat the earth before various stones around me. Cars idle at the roadsides and long valleys and ridges on into the distance, and everything is torn and up and uprooted in this section. All the wet markings of the earth and the tractors, all these graves, freshly developed, and those birds' nests, giant and wet-leaved, as if they've been dropped by unseen hands into the crooks of tree limbs. I talk to him, so conscious of being alive and talking to my impressions, my memories of him, suspending all disbelief. I know he's there, and I see him. I sense him in the hole down there under the surface of that earth. I see him, without the covering of the plain pine box. The box no longer exists in my head. There's just a huge, wide earth, and grass and fields and crow-feet trees, and me, my shape in the wet air, and clouds like gauze, like gray overlapping and fog, and I tell him I'm scared and confused, and I'm crying, and I tell him how much I love him, and how much he means to me, and I tell him everything in my head, all the contradictions, all fear, and all love, and all alone. And his death is now as if it's printed on celluloid on the backs of my eyes. That last day, when friends came to speak reassurances to him, or to read letters from other friends to him, or touch his hands or feet, or to simply sit by his bed. There were people arriving and departing all day long. There was some point when I was sitting at the far corner of the bed in a chair, thinking about leaving, when I looked toward his face, and his eyes moved slightly, and I put two fingers up like rabbit ears behind the back of my head, a gesture, a high sign we had that we'd discreetly give when we bumped into each other at a crowded gathering in the past. I flashed him the sign, and then turned away embarrassed, and moments later Ethel said, David, look at Peter. We all turned to the bed, and his body was completely still. And then there was a very strong and slow intake of breath, and then stillness, and then one more intake of breath, and he was gone. I surprised myself. I barely cried. When everyone left the room, I closed the door and pulled the Super 8 camera out of my bag and did a sweep of his bed. His open eye, his open mouth, that beautiful hand with the hint of gauze at the wrist that held the IV needle, the color of his hand like marble, the full sense of the flesh of it. Then the still camera, portraits of his amazing feet, his head, that open eye again. I kept trying to get the light I saw in that eye. And then the door flew open and a nun rushed in, babbling about how he'd accepted the church. And I look at this guy on the bed with his outstretched arm and I think, but he's beyond that. He's more there than the words coming from her containing these images of spirituality. I mean, just the essence of death. The whole taboo structure in this culture, the mystery of it, the fears and joys of it, the flight it contains, this body of my friend on the bed, this body of my brother, my father, my emotional link to the world, this body, I don't know, this pure and cutting air, just all the thoughts and sensations, this death, this event, produces in bystanders, contains more spirituality than any words we can manufacture. So I asked her to leave, and after closing the door again, 
I tried to say something to him, staring into that enormous eye. If in death the body's energy disperses and merges with everything around us, can it immediately know my thoughts? But I try and speak anyway, and try and say something in case he's afraid or confused by his own death, and maybe needs some reassurance or tool to pick up. But nothing comes from my mouth. This is the most important event of my life, and my mouth can't form words. And maybe I'm the one who needs words. Maybe I'm the one who needs reassurance, and all I can do is raise my hands from my sides in helplessness and say, All I want is some sort of grace. And then the water comes from my eyes.